When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. The Soundtrack Show will begin in five, four, three... While George Lucas had always envisioned a Star Wars film score reminiscent of those from the classic Hollywood era, John Williams' work was transcendent. Their collaboration on Star Wars changed movies and movie music forever. This is The Soundtrack Show. to the soundtrack show i'm your host david w collins and right now we're exploring the music to star wars a film from 1977 written and directed by george lucas with a breathtaking score by john williams on the last episode we got to know george lucas his influences his story for a complete background on john williams i'd love to invite you to listen to a previous episode of the soundtrack show called Jaws, Williams, and Spielberg, an introduction. We also went on to discuss how Jaws, which at the time was the most successful movie ever released, played a pivotal role in Williams and Spielberg's life, giving us a neoclassical film score. At that time, Williams mentioned that Jaws should sound like a pirate movie. It should be fun. It should have a corn gold feel. Now, when George Lucas was looking for a collaborator on Star Wars... Spielberg jumped at the chance to recommend John Williams. It seems that all three of them were tapped into the idea of classic Hollywood film scores at that time. Here's George Lucas talking about his idea for what the Star Wars soundtrack should be. I had known Steven Spielberg for a long time up to this point. And, uh, you know, I was, we were talking about the film real early on when I was writing the script. And I said, you know, I want... You know, I want a classical score. I, you know, I want the, you know, the, the uh, corn gold kind of feel about this thing. It's a, it's an old-fashioned kind of movie, and and I want that grand uh, soundtrack that you used to have on movies. And he said, the guy you got to talk to is John Williams. You know, he did Jaws. I love him. He's the greatest composer ever lived. You got to talk to him. 
And so I did. I mean, it was really Stephen that introduced us and, and recommended him. And, um, you know, I talked to him and said, okay, and he was interested. So he, he did it, and he's a, a dream to work with. You know, it's the, he's a, a most wonderful collaborator. It's worth mentioning that this was largely out of fashion in the mid-70s. Anti-heroes ruled the silver screen. People were disenfranchised with their governments. Long gone were the idyllic representations of America, of civilized modern society. Just after the Vietnam War, the mood of the country was one of pessimism. Here's a quote from George Lucas. Young people don't have a fantasy life anymore. All they've got is Kojak and Dirty Harry. There's all these kids running around wanting to be killer cops because the films they see are movies of disasters and insecurity and realistic violence. End quote. Then along came Star Wars, with its music designed to lift you out of your chair, cheering at the screen. In the last episode, I mentioned three pillars to the success of Star Wars and the importance of its movie score. The first is timing, as we've discussed. Star Wars debuted like an oasis in a desert of cynicism. The second that I mentioned was innovation, and the third was universal appeal. But let's talk about innovation. At a first glance, it always goes to the visual effects, and for good reason. But while the creation of visual effects techniques like motion control and the Dijkstra Flex camera were hugely important to Star Wars, its musical nod to the past, in my opinion, is what makes the movie work emotionally. Consider this. The full London Symphony Orchestra in the mid-70s performing a swashbuckling score. The genius of it is that George Lucas could bring it back free of irony and cynicism when it's placed against visuals the likes of which the world had never, ever seen. And more than that, audiences needed it. They needed that music. They needed the emotional context, the human experience on alien worlds, the anachronistic nature of the score is what makes it so familiar. So the innovation of Star Wars is more than looking forward in terms of the technology of filmmaking. It's taking everything that worked so beautifully in the past and giving it new life. And then finally, the third pillar that I mentioned, it's universal appeal. Now, much has been made of George Lucas's desire to create universal character archetypes and a fairy tale for a new generation, Joseph Campbell, all of that. But to say that John Williams understood this instinctively is an understatement. Even Lucas, by many accounts, including his own, was surprised and delighted by Williams' work. I had, I had written it to certain pieces of music. I write to music. So when I'm writing a scene, I, I have the music there, and I'm writing it to the music. And then, uh, in a lot of cases, we'll use that same music as a temp track. So there was temp tracks of classical music in the score. And, um, and with Johnny, you can say, look, I want something that feels exactly like this. You know, it just, you understand the emotion here and the emotion there and what's going on. He said, yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, then he will take that and he will come up with his own composition and his own themes, which are uniquely, you know, Star Wars themes in this case. And, but he'll give it that same emotional thrust that was in the, in the classical piece. He knows exactly what I'm talking about and he's really conscientious in trying to get the director's vision uh, on the screen. 
John Williams watched the film many times over several days in early 1977 with that temp music, and slowly, he crafted a plan on how he would creatively proceed. Here's a quote from Jonathan Rinsler's 2007 book, The Making of Star Wars. Quote, I think the music relates to the characters and the human problems, even when they are Wookiees, Williams says. This is the gut thrust of the thing in music, a very romantic theme for the princess, a heroic march for the Jedi Knights. All of this material has to do with the fairy tale aspect of it. I didn't want to hear a piece of Dvorak here, a piece of Tchaikovsky there, he continues, commenting on a discussion he'd had with Lucas. What I wanted, this is John Williams talking, what I wanted to hear was something to do with Ben Kenobi more developed here, something to do with his death over there. What we needed were themes of our own, which one could put through all the permutations of a dramatic situation. This was my discussion and my dialogue with George, that I felt we needed our own themes, which could be made into a solid dramaturgical glue from start to finish. To whatever extent we have succeeded, this is what I tried to do. End quote. Ah, John Williams, always the humble one. Lucas goes on to say, I was very, very pleased with the score. We wanted a very Max Steiner type of romantic movie score. There were a lot of little discussions about if this or that would make it go too far. Would it be too much? I decided to just do it all the way down the line, one end to the other, complete. Everything is on that same level, which is sort of old-fashioned and fun, but going for the most dramatic and emotional elements that I could get. End quote. So here's where John Williams created a timeless masterpiece. By using a technique made immensely popular 100 years before by Richard Wagner, a composer who we'll discuss at great length in a future episode. In fact, I think any film lover would be fascinated to hear comparisons of Wagner's work against your favorite film scores. John Williams used leitmotifs, or musical phrases or themes, to identify different characters and situations. As audience members, this makes the action very easy to follow and provides the emotional framework and context we need to instantly get these archetype characters, to understand their emotional appeal, very much like a 19th century opera or melodrama or early classic Hollywood adventure films. So let's start once again with the main title. I'll come back to it throughout our discussion on themes, but let's just get this in our ear one more time. According to the liner notes on the original soundtrack album, John Williams said the following. Quote, Luke. Luke's theme is fanfarish and brassy and bold and masculine and noble and all those things. When this music is done softer, it tends to be done in some sort of brass, horns if it is more heraldic. It's the glow, the full glow of the glorious brass section of the London Symphony Orchestra. End quote. So we now know that the main title music is a theme for Luke Skywalker, according to John Williams in the original album release back in 1977. Remember, this was before there was a trilogy of movies. 
or certainly a prequel trilogy, a sequel trilogy, toys, TV shows, video games. There was just this one movie before all of that. So these themes have perhaps taken on new meaning throughout the years, and I think that's natural. But this is a historical discussion about this particular score and its creative intention at the time. So you can hear this theme, the main title. You can hear this theme in several key places in the film that clearly show us William's logic in calling this Luke's theme. Beyond hearing it in the opening title crawl, you don't hear it again for another 17 minutes in the film. And that's when you first meet Luke Skywalker. 17 minutes already into the film before we meet our main character. Okay, all right, fine. Let's go. Doesn't look like we have much of a choice, but I'll remind him. During the beginning of the movie, when Luke is still trying to define himself as an adult, as the hero he longs to become, the theme is stated softly, underscoring the familiar comforts of the homestead. In fact, you don't hear the theme fully realized again until later in the movie when Luke, Han, and Chewie are attempting to rescue Princess Leia. I'm Luke Skywalker. I'm here to rescue you. You're who? I'm here to rescue you. I've got your R2 unit. I'm here with Ben Kenobi. And of course, in the famous jump over the chasm. Finally, towards the film's climactic ending, as Luke switches off his targeting computer, you hear the theme hitting you again to build suspense toward the big moment. And then, once again, it is Luke's heroism that lifts us out of our seats as the credits roll. We're reminded of the incredible character arc of our protagonist, the hero's journey, and we're given a lavish and exciting send-off, kicking off with Luke's theme. And that, my friends, is a demonstration of just one incredible theme that gets our heart racing in Star Wars. For a longer discussion on the overall melody of the main title, or Luke's theme, you can find it in my first ever episode of the Soundtrack Show called Great Melodies Tell Great Stories. There are so many more to discuss. And now for a brief intermission. 
it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. And now, back to the soundtrack show. There's another theme that is critical to Star Wars, to the Force, to the wise, mysterious old wizard, Obi-Wan Kenobi, who teaches us through the eyes of our hero the noble, generations-old wisdom of the Jedi Knights. Here's a quote from the liner notes of the original album. John Williams, quote, I think of Ben's theme as also being the theme of the Jedi Knights, the old republic that Ben remembers. It also overlaps into the area of being the theme for the force, the good force that Ben represents, end quote. This theme has a much different feel upon first listen than Luke's theme, yet it works so perfectly as a secondary theme against Luke's. It goes like this. Interesting. It's set in a minor key. There it is in G minor. Which is right off the bat, right off the bat it makes it different than Luke's theme, which is major. It's at a slower pace, it's more thoughtful. And it builds, and the build takes much longer than just the rush up to the achievement note that the main title has, you know, this. It's, it's a much slower build. It's older, it's wiser, and maybe a little melancholy. But in this minor key, we actually hear hope. At one point, the theme borrows a chord from its parallel major scale, giving it a hint of optimism. If you're here in G minor, it borrows from G major here. Which is kind of that nice little lift. Ooh. It's got a mystical yet human quality to it, and its intervals leap up and down. And in fact, the whole melody, just like the main title, covers a whole uh, octave and a half. Speaking of the main title, it actually shares a similar shape rhythmically with the main title. Though it's at a slower pace or tempo, it has that same form of elongated notes, followed by these triplet melodies, or here. So if I was to play the main theme, and then play Obi's theme over it, or as it's come to be known, the force theme, together, it would sound like this. You can hear the similarities in their overall shape. 
What John Williams later referred to as a Star Warsian quality in terms of their rhythmic and melodic shape, the kind of melodies that he would write for Star Wars, they kind of are, are in a little family together. They have these little subtle subtleties that, that make them feel like they're part of the same score, this cohesion, certainly Luke becoming a Jedi and the heroism of Luke being related to the Jedi and related to the Force. It makes sense. I find it ironic that this theme moves from big note to big note via triplets as we seem to move through the Star Wars story in trilogies. I don't think there's anything to read into there, but I think it's interesting. Is it any wonder, then, that George Lucas asked Williams to use this theme for Luke's most personal moment, since those two are connected? Early in the film, Luke stares into the binary sunset, longing for adventure, for belonging, a sense of identity. Williams developed great character themes, but wasn't strict about adhering to them exactly if the melodic material worked well for another moment. And this moment is arguably one of the greatest musical moments in film history. I'll make it up to him next year. I promise. <laughs> Luke's just not a farmer, Owen. He has too much of his father in him. That's what I'm afraid of. just so beautiful. By the way, uh, it really strikes me, especially in, when considering George's story coming from Modesto and his longing for a bigger life, everything we talked about in terms of the I Want song that was his life and the theme behind THX and American Graffiti and against Star Wars, this moment, the binary sunset, I think is one of the most personal George Lucas moments, a feeling that he was trying to capture here. That is George Lucas standing there looking at the binary sunset. That is a personal experience being captured in, in a science fiction space opera fantasy film. By the way, did you notice that theme's lack of resolve? In other words, it goes... It barely even resolves there at the end. It remains open without its last note. You know, it doesn't do... It doesn't do that. This theme, like Luke's, goes through many dramatic permutations, as Williams put it, throughout the film. At times, it's a precursor of what's to come, such as when Leia inserts the Death Star plans into R2. They are, after all, meant for Obi-Wan Kenobi. <sighs> R2-D2, where are you? Or when tragedy strikes, it can be devastating, such as the loss of Luke's aunt and uncle as his childhood home burns. Oh, wait, Luke. It's too dangerous. Mm -hmm. 
Notice the dies irae in there as well, giving us the universal musical word for death. For more on dies irae, please take a listen to the doom and gloom episode of The Soundtrack Show. Okay, I'll stop doing that now. Can you tell I've been working my way towards talking about Star Wars for a long time? Well, hey, <laughs> at least I'm consistent, right? But back to the Force theme. It works really well as an action piece, too, as we can hear in the end as the Rebels start their attack on the Death Star. As you can hear, you don't really get that full resolve, or what we call a cadence in musical terms, in any of these examples. That is, until Williams uses the Force theme slash Obi-Wan theme as the melody to his throne room march at the end of the movie. There you're getting that great resolve. As the piece loops around. As the melody repeats. What a great piece. And finally, here we have a fully stated, fully resolving representation of the Force theme. Of Obi-Wan's theme. Our heroes, and us, the audience, have finally earned it. It's as if all is right with the world. Or perhaps balance is being brought to the Force for the first time in a generation. The Rebel Alliance in the film is portrayed very simply by a small piece of music that John Williams refers to as the Rebel Fanfare. It's short, with a simple yet perfectly clear shape in terms of its drama. It goes like this. You have these chords that are major, but they're rocking through minor intervals. But you play them as major chords. This contrast of light, major, moving through darkness, minor, sends a very clear message. After all, as Nelson Mandela once said, bravery isn't the absence of fear, but the triumph over it. Well, that idea is communicated to us very subtly, but clearly, in just a few chords with the Rebel fanfare. It's used throughout the film, but its most famous use is probably during the TIE Fighter attack. Also, there's a very subtle nod to it in the main title. 
After Luke's theme conveys the heroism, eventually the heroism has its denouement, which features the Dies Irae. As if he's overcome death, or literally in this film, the Death Star. While that happens, because up to this point, we've had very simple harmony. During all of this. There is a subtle nod to the rebellion. The chords underneath echo those of the rebel fanfare. It's subtle, but to me, it's very intentional. It is quite a departure from the rest of the harmony in this piece. It's definitely a statement that he's making. And in general, throughout the Star Wars movies, we'll find that the themes do reference each other in subtle ways, as the Force Obi theme and Luke's theme do. But we'll get to those themes and those movies in due time. Right now, I want to chat about another theme that sets a different tone. Another side of the Star Wars score. Musically, it's a standout that functions in a way that none of the other pieces do, but John Williams weaves it into the emotional heart of Star Wars with its bold melody, its passion, and its intense beauty, not to mention its mystery and vulnerability and sadness. And that is the theme for Leia. Long before she was the daughter of Darth Vader and the brother of Luke Skywalker, she was Princess Leia Organa of Alderaan, a senator who was secretly co-leading the Rebel Alliance against the Galactic Empire until her Rebel leanings catch up to her as she is apprehended at the top of the movie by Darth Vader. What John Williams gives us is a lyrical, beautiful theme that speaks its own language, apart from the other themes we've heard. It's in the tradition of the classic love themes from the Golden Age of Hollywood. Let's take a listen.
It's absolutely gorgeous. So much so that it exists as its own concert piece on the soundtrack. So this is a great opportunity on the soundtrack show to talk about concert arrangements of movie themes. John Williams, beyond scoring the movie for Star Wars, also created some works that are standalone pieces to be performed by orchestras in concert. What we've had for years on the Star Wars soundtrack album is a concert arrangement, like a song, that was recorded specifically for listening to as part of an album or concert, and doesn't actually appear that way in the film. Now, throughout the film, Leia's theme appears in different ways. Let's go back to the scene where Leia is entering the data disk of the stolen Death Star plants into R2. As we mentioned before, you hear Obi-Wan's Force theme at this moment. But there's more to the story. If you keep listening, that theme is immediately followed by Leia's theme. R2-D2, where are you? More specifically, when you hear the Force theme, you're only seeing a mysterious arm enter the data disk into R2. As an audience seeing Star Wars for the first time, we don't know who that arm belongs to, though we can guess it could be the princess mentioned by 3PO and in the movie's opening title crawl. All we see on screen is just R2, and the shift in music to the serious tone of the Force theme tells us that we must now be seeing why this ship is under attack. These are the stolen plans, which we also read about in the crawl. See, this is all done with visuals and music. There's no, there's no expositional dialogue that has to walk us through this. It's just so clear, like I said, like that. Now, it isn't until the camera cuts away from that to a long shot of Leia down the hallway that Williams introduces her quickly with her theme, Leia's theme, thus identifying her with that music immediately, just as he will do with Luke. By the way, the Force theme, on the other hand, follows destiny or the will of the Force. Leia's delivery of the plans to R2, to Luke, finally to Obi-Wan, and then back to Luke, who meets up with Leia, loses Obi-Wan, destroys the Death Star, and becomes the galaxy's new hope. But back to Leia. According to Williams, this isn't the first time we've had a hint of her theme. Just after the title crawl, Williams uses a harmonic language and instrumentation that is inspired by Leia's theme. We hear this piccolo, and, this, and we hear it in deep space, giving us a preview of her Carillion Corvette's arrival on screen. The piccolo, by the way, for our information, is a lighter, smaller version of the flute, which is the instrument we strongly associate with her. And then there's the language of outer space itself in Star Wars. It uses the same sound that makes up the core of Leia's harmony, or the music that supports her main melody. It's this sound. If I'm playing, playing her, her theme, it's, it's this. It's this augmented chord. It also sometimes is represented as a four minor for you, for you uh, music geeks out there is a borrowed minor chord for major. It's got that major minor sound in it. But here it's, it's represented as an augmented chord. And you hear that right here. 
and then the piccolo line. Interesting that you hear Princess Leia over the vastness of outer space. It's as if Princess Leia and all that she is fighting for is our link, the audience's link, to the rest of the galaxy. It's hard to imagine nowadays, but all we knew about that galaxy far, far away when we saw the first Star Wars was a desert planet called Tatooine, a giant space station, and a jungle planet called Yavin. Two remote planets and a space station? That's it. Everything else is hinted at or just said in dialogue. So Leia, to us, represents the rest of the galaxy. The galactic fight. Before we ever see it. She is living a purpose-filled life that Luke can only dream of. And like Luke, we dream of discovering it and living it as well through him. By connecting outer space with Leia, we are subtly given reason to care about Leia before she ever speaks a word. It's as if Leia represents, to Luke, and therefore to us, everything in the galaxy worth fighting for. So when we first see Leia, we see her hiding in the shadows after her crew is killed by stormtroopers. We hear her theme. We hear it a second time just before the first close-up as she pulls down her hood, subtly in the background. Then we really get it where we need it most to fully identify her during her hologram appearances. Here's the partial message that Luke hears. Who is she? She's beautiful. I'm afraid. I'm not quite sure, Help sir. me, Obi-Wan Kenobi. I think Why she was a passenger home? on our last voyage. A person of some importance, as I believe. Our captain was attacked Is there any to... more to this recording? <laughs> Behave yourself, R2. You're going to get us into trouble. It's all right. You can trust him. He's our new master. He says that he is the property of Obi-Wan Kenobi, a resident of these parts, and it's a private message for him. Quite frankly, sir, I don't know what he's talking about. Our last master was Captain Antilles, but with all we've been through, this little R2 unit has become a bit eccentric. Obi-Wan Kenobi. I wonder if he means old Ben Kenobi. I beg your pardon, sir, but do you know what he's talking about? And the full message that R2 finally plays for Obi-Wan. I saw part of the message. He w I seem to have found it. General Kenobi. Years ago, you served my father in the Clone Wars. Now he begs you to help him in his struggle against the Empire. I regret that I am unable to present my father's request to you in person, but my ship has fallen under attack, and I'm afraid my mission to bring you to Alderaan has failed. I have placed information vital to the survival of the Rebellion into the memory systems of this R2 unit. My father will know how to retrieve it. You must see this droid safely delivered to him on Alderaan. This is our most desperate hour. Help me, Obi-Wan Kenobi. You're my only hope. As with the Force theme, John Williams doesn't strictly adhere to theme assignments. He'll use a theme when it provides the right emotional impact. Another great example besides the binary sunset of this is during the death of Obi-Wan Kenobi at the hands of Darth Vader. Instead of playing ominous chords or evil chords, or an extended force theme, as he did for the death of Luke's aunt and uncle, he hits us with Leia's theme.
Why? Well, here's John Williams himself talking about it in an interview from April of 1977, just a month after recording the score. The death of Ben. In the death of Ben, I used part of the princess theme in the beginning of it for two reasons. I took the dramatic license because it was the sweeping, most sweeping melody in, of, of the lot in the score. And the way it represents Ben is, di- is either died or, or dying off stage, and they are escaping. You know, it's a gun battle as they escape. And what happens is that I play wildly romantic music in a kind of tragic setting, which represents their reaction to his death. And oddly enough, the best piece of music was not Luke's or Ben's, but it was the princess theme. In a way, it's, uh, I'm playing it musically to, to, in, in the sense that it's what's inside of her and Luke uh, and their reaction to this. I feel like this really works. There's something about the Force theme that is different than this. The Force theme plays at the emotional idea of destiny, of, of timelessness. The slow, emotional build of that theme feels historic and almost takes on like a, a macro Greek chorus view of the action, whereas Leia's theme feels immediate. The melody moves from beautiful discovery to emotional struggle as it rises and falls and rises and falls. There's an immediate communication of love and pain that that theme seems to carry. And there's something about Leia's theme that has the slightest underpinning of sorrow. Beautiful music that is as lush as Leia's theme is meant to go straight to the feels. And this usage with Ben Kenobi does that very well. And even within the context of the story, I see it working. The younger generation, Luke, Leia, and Han, they're on their own now. Like the Rebel Alliance, whose story is filled with sacrifice, Leia's story is surrounded by it. Almost defined by it, in fact, as the saga continues. Now, the loss of a mentor is a tremendous blow to Luke, and us, for sure. Its personal nature is easy to understand probably more so than a galactic conflict that we're only getting a glimpse of in this dialogue here and there up to this point. Still, it is kind of funny that Leia, the worldly leader that she is, ironically comforts him on the loss, even though she just witnessed the destruction of her entire world. Ah, the sacrifices and emotional strength that a leader like Leia has to have for others all the time. There's your sorrowful underpinning. So I think Williams picked up on that and gave Leia just the slightest bit of tragedy in her theme. The Soundtrack Show will continue in a moment. We return now to The Soundtrack Show. I want to close with an email that I received shortly after I started The Soundtrack Show. This is from Ali Pasha. And forgive me, I'll have to just read highlights of this, but it's a wonderful email. Hi, David. I wanted to share my personal story of Star Wars, classical music, and soundtracks, because I think it is a bit unique and might be interesting to you. I was born and raised up until my mid-twenties in Iran, the country that back in the 80s, even possessing a video cassette was considered a crime and could get you into serious trouble. The same went with many Western music cassettes and records as well. Western blockbusters were a no-no in movie theaters. I think I'd seen several Japanese Godzilla movies in theater with my dad. And your source of Betamax or later VHS tapes of, quote, recently screened, i.e. pirated movies, were these shady business guys that smuggled tapes to the country, made copies, and rented them around town. 
I used to call them my movie uncles. So how can a kid raised in this environment become fascinated with classical music, Star Wars, and John Williams? The story starts when I was about five years old. We used to have a cassette player for which my dad had made a pair of giant speakers, before the revolution of 1979, of course. I was the only child, and most of the time partially home alone with Grandma, but she never paid much attention to what I did. We had a small collection of cassettes, some of which I suppose were band material like some old songs set from the 60s and 70s. Basically anything with lyrics was certainly banned. So to entertain myself, I would just pick one from the shelf, put it in the player, wait for the initial silence to pass, listen to some part, fast forward a bit, listen again for something catchy, and if by five to ten first minutes of the tape nothing interesting happened, the cassette would go back to the shelf and another was picked. Among them was one that I could always listen to if I could not find anything else. This black-covered tape was labeled Star Wars and the Close Encounters of the Third Kind, Suites by John Williams, performed by Los Angeles Philharmonic, conducted by Zubin Mehta. Well, at the time, I could read no English, so I had no idea what those words meant. But I had a pretty good idea of how that tape sounded. You cannot imagine how many days I had listened to that cassette, the big bang of the main title, and the soaring main theme of Star Wars delivered by that powerful brass section of the orchestra. The princess's track was too sad for my taste, so I always skipped it, but not the Jawas theme. The cantina track was always fun. Approaching the Death Star was ominous, but I found the march-like progression very intriguing. And last but not least, the throne room was just breathtaking. As a kid, I used to stand in the middle of the living room, play the tape, and pretend I was a conductor. That cassette was my sole window into this glorious form of music with catchy melodies performed by this magnificent orchestra, something I later realized was known as classical music or orchestral music. I think that experience simply centered my taste in music. Even today, I can entertain all kinds of music, but the only kind that I deeply enjoy is classical music, plus whatever John Williams writes. At some point, I did ask my dad what that tape was, and he said it was Star Wars, a movie about space stuff. So, right there, I told myself, I have to watch this Star Wars someday and get more of these melodies. Well... Years later, after I watched Return of the Jedi, I realized that I had seen parts of it when I was about four in a bomb shelter during the rocket raids of the Iran-Iraq War, but at the time, I had no idea what it was. As years went by, I became probably the youngest and weirdest patron of obscure cassette shops around Tehran, the capital. One who liked classical music, while all his peers listened to contraband and smuggled pop hits of 80s and 90s. I became the weird kid in, in a suit and tie who showed up at every single performance of Tehran's symphony orchestra, sometimes having bought tickets in advance and sometimes just going person to person asking if they had an extra ticket. The quality of the performance was not really high. Even I could tell the mistakes the orchestra members made during the performance, but all I wanted to enjoy was watching an orchestra in action. At age 12, I finally got my wish— one of my mom's co-workers in the TV company copied the original trilogy from the Laserdiscs he had onto VHS tapes for me. There and then, a new fan was born. Having watched Star Wars over a hundred times, I became one of the few in my school and college who could actually understand the dialogues of an English movie in real time without even having completed an English language training class 
How I learned English primarily because I wanted to understand Star Wars is another story for another time. I've been living in the U.S. for about a decade now where I can watch The Force Awakens in theaters 12 times, go to the Hollywood Bowl to watch John Williams conduct the orchestra, and listen to David Collins dissect film music and expand my ability of enjoying all things music. One cannot be more grateful. All this to say thank you for giving this kid from a faraway land new perspectives and insight into the music composition and analysis. Can't wait for the next episode. May the Force be with you, Alapasha. Oh, this is great. P.S. Side note, I am probably the only one in my generation, born in the 80s, who lived in the Middle East, who has seen a 35mm copy of Star Wars on the screen from when it just said, Star Wars. It is a period of no episode four there. Thank you, Ali Pasha. Thank you for this email. And thanks to all of you who write in and follow us on social media. I want you to know I read every single post and I appreciate your feedback very much. Please follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Soundtrack Show HSW or on Twitter at Soundtrack HSW. I'm also on Twitter at David W. Collins. I'll be back next week to talk even more about Star Wars and dive even deeper into this incredible historic film score. Thank you.